The idea of this podcast is simple, discipleship. We want to bring the gospel message about how to interact with your coworkers, your culture, your friends, everyone around you in a biblical way, which is, in essence, discipleship. What did Jesus do when he came to this earth? He took the devil's stuff. The Bible actually teaches that the world is becoming increasingly covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. That should change everything in the mind of a Christian. Instead of thinking about all the ways society is failing, we should think about all the ways society must be, as Psalm 1101 tells us, put underneath the feet of Jesus in victory. The Rebel Podcast. We would be honored if you would join us. Welcome back to the Rebel Podcast. P Nate, Elder P, Air Jordan, Wetsy on the dials, popping off, Raj Mahal. How you guys doing today? Doing well, doing well. Ready to talk more weird stuff? Yeah, I like weird stuff. <laughs> weird stuff like popping off? Like, yeah, like, yeah start there. Popping off, <laughs> like, popping off got back into your vocabulary You know what somehow. it is, is? I blame you. Let me okay. explain. I now have to handle youth at our church, mm. and they have weird lingo. Like, everything's lit. Everything's like, you know, flexing. What was bussin? You used the phrase bussin the other day. Yeah, apparently that means it's good. Mm. I don't understand. I thought it was public transit, but apparently not. But <laughs> yeah. generally public transit's bad. But yeah, yes, but <laughs> popping off, it means it's all happening. It's all good stuff. Right. Because all, all the things are happening. I can actually segue this really well. Somebody asked me whether or not the principalities and powers of darkness that we had talked about last time have intentionally changed the vocabulary because we often say the cultural battle is a battle for the dictionary. And he said, isn't it interesting that if something is good, it became bad, right? Michael Jackson came out with that, you know, it's bad. Or like if something's awesome, it's wicked, right? It's like, have they intentionally changed the dictionary to confuse terms and stuff like that? I'm like, that's a really interesting point that I'd never really thought of. It's like wicked is now good. And it's like, woe to those who call good for evil, evil for good. And bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I'm just like, whoa, that's fair. I'm not going to use the term wicked anymore, even though I feel like I did, mostly because of Bill and Ted's bogus journey. But, you know. I See, I was a bigger guy into radical. That's radical, man. That's radical. That's a really good thought. Hmm. So that means Bruxy Cavey, who changes all the words to mean other things, is the enemy's tool. Like, just How did Bruxy Cavey get into this? I was just thinking, remember, because remember we, back a, a while ago, we did that thing. And like that was the big thing with him is that yeah, he, he, was he just said using, uh, he was using our words to define something totally different. Yeah, so it yeah. sounded like orthodoxy, but it wasn't. We've often said that the cultural battles are battles for the dictionary. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the principalities and powers of darkness who are working against the plans and purposes of God are intentionally distorting words. And we've said this often now, Christians are accused of being unloving, but it's because the world is defined what love means and love to them means tolerance, right? And so if we are intolerant, then we are unloving. Well, those aren't synonyms, right? In fact, biblical love is not tolerant. It's actually rejoices in truth, right? Which, which also means that it condemns falsehood. So there's a good transition for you. Now let's talk about demons. <laughs> no, I, I'm just curious. Like I got a bunch of texts and just people this week who listen to the podcast and like, you guys are getting weird, but I love it. Just people who have thought some of these things, but never had an outlet to hear them talked about. Yeah, we, we got a ton of questions in and it was funny because some of the like just the phrases people were using. Like my favorite one, though, was was like, we've always known you were crazy talking about me. Just <laughs> like, But it's great to hear that Nate is too. <laughs> I'm like, 
Yeah, he is. <laughs> it's funny. There's a, a friend of ours who he just got married to another friend of ours. And when we met him probably like six to nine months ago, he had just been introduced to our church. Josh, if you're listening. Um, <laughs> and he, uh, he told me afterwards, he was like, man, when I first met you, I really thought you were really weird. Cause like all this stuff you're talking about, it's like, it's just crazy. But then now as he's been like listening to the stuff, I've been like, okay, go listen to this for yourself. Read this. We talk, we chat about this all the time. Now he's, he's like, it's totally like, it makes sense to him. Right. But at the time he's like, I thought you were nuts. So it was just funny how. Well, it was it was funny on Sunday after every Sunday, you know, after you preach or whatever, there's, there's people who kind of want to come up and they ask questions and all this kind of stuff. And usually that, that lineup ends and there's still all the talkers, I would say, who still, you know, fellowship after church. We leave a lot of room even between our services for a long time of fellowship. And I think it was you. I, I don't remember who you were talking to. And if I did, I wouldn't out them anyway, but I just finished talking to everybody. So then you scan the room to be like, oh, who do I want to go and talk to right after this lineup is done? And I look over at you and I'm like, oh, I kind of talk to Jordan all the time. All I heard was chemtrails. I'm like, I'm jumping into that conversation. It was just like, okay, here we go. Like this is, so it was just funny. And I won't go further into where that conversation led, but uh, we did get interrupted, but. Uh, not, not to go back to the paradigm shift, but like one of the paradigm shifts that I think has happened with a lot of like, like-minded people over this little bit is that like, all of us were like a little bit of conspiracy theories that, and now it's just like my default position is that they're real. And like, you have yeah. to prove to me that they're not. Well, if anything from COVID, the whole thing taught us anything is that the government is willing to lie to us. Yeah. They do want to cause harm yeah. and they will go to extreme lengths to cover their lies and to push their agenda. So this is actually being recorded a week and a half before it's going to be released. But just yesterday, there was a advisory of the air quality. And I don't know if you guys saw, there was like smoke in the air and it smelled like campfire and all this kind of stuff. And I just get so agitated with this stuff now. So one of the neighborhood kids who's playing with our children, he's outside and a couple of the neighborhood kids are wearing masks, which immediately agitates me. So this one kid, he comes up, he's about nine years old and he goes, oh, I can feel the smoke getting into my lungs. This isn't good for me. And I'm just like, hey, I almost say his name, but I'm like, hey, bud. Have you ever sat around a campfire? He's just like, yeah. And he had been talking about how all of this is because of the climate change. He called them literally the climate change forest fires. That's what he called them. First of all, this guy goes to public school. Clearly they're teaching something. But I'm like, have you ever sat around a campfire? He's like, yeah. I'm like, do you like roasting marshmallows and having s'mores around a campfire? He's like, yeah, absolutely. I'm like, I think you're a lot closer to the smoke at that point than uh, the forest fires that are going on in Alberta. And he's like, yeah, but the air quality is so bad. I'm like, the air quality around a campfire is full of smoke too. I'm like, but has it killed you yet? And he's just like, no, I, I, I guess not. I'm like, then I think you're fine. Keep running around. <laughs> like, and it's just, it's funny. Cause like I had this conversation with several people who I think are like fairly intelligent people. And they're like, oh, the air quality is so bad. Like this is going to kill us. And I'm, I just said like, what's burning in a forest fire? Wood, exactly. not plastic. <laughs> like, it's just, it's just funny how you can see the plays that are happening and so now they're, they're setting us up like I've never I've been alive for a long time and I've never seen a kid's sporting event canceled because of air quality. I didn't even know that was a thing. And yesterday our son's baseball was canceled because of air quality. I had said early on in COVID, these lockdowns, they're going to move to witness, Chris, I right? These are going to move to climate lockdowns. And everybody called me crazy at that time. So anyway, yeah. that's not the theme of this episode, but I just want to say like. There is something about being skeptical 
and understanding that worldview that like the government doesn't have your best interest in mind. And I think this all comes from the the worldview that we're espousing here and the, the idea that there are principalities and powers of darkness. There are demonic forces that are influencing national powers and people of influence in our culture. And those people are driving a narrative. And so understanding that there are dark and demonic forces behind those who are pushing various, whether it's political agendas, ideological agendas, et cetera, actually opens your eyes to be able to see things that you wouldn't otherwise see. Yeah, it has to be national deception because there's a series of reels that come out all the time and it's like Generation X, like basically people who are born up to 1979, kind of chirping all the people who were born after being like, we used to spend all our days outside eating dirt yeah. and we're all fine. But those are all the people who are in power now that are perpetuating this lie about like, oh, you can't go outside. It's not safe to be outside. You can't yeah. breathe the air. We spent our entire childhoods not inside, riding our bikes across highways to the store. Like, and most of us are still here. You know what I mean? Like, well, and not only that, but you just think through, like it was in the fifties, they were warning about the impending new ice age that was going to come within a hundred years. They were talking about global cooling, right? And then when we all grew up, maybe not Jordan, he's a bit younger than us, but remember it was, it was the hole in the ozone layer, right? That's going to kill us. There's a big hole in the ozone layer and it's going to burn your skin and you're going to get all kinds of awful things happening because of the hole in the ozone. Have you heard anything about a hole in the ozone? Ozone? No, because we realized that the hole in the ozone that they had detected had been naturally occurring over the North Pole for years, and the small other areas had regenerated because God made a pretty awesome universe. And then on top of that, then you get to global warming, and then they show the cycles and all that kind of stuff. Oh, it's not global warming anymore. So now it's just climate change, which is a pretty convenient thing because the climate is always going to be changing. So I just say that to say what the principalities are after are to control a population through fear. And so don't be afraid of these things because that's how you are controlled. Amen. Yeah. Okay. Let's, so, let, let's jump into some questions. Yeah. yeah I, I we got, sure lot, we yeah, we got lots of questions about uh, all of this stuff going on. Now we're probably going to get a bunch more questions about chemtrails and, uh, <laughs> and climate change, but let that be for the, another episode. It is yeah. Nate at. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, that's probably my favorite joke that we do. Chemtrails is one of those interesting ones because like, Oh, you're just going to keep going. I know. I know. Keep it's, it's, it. it's, it's because I'm like, what are we actually saying they're doing? And it's like, but then when I hear when people explain that to me, I'm like, that makes complete sense. <laughs> and I'm like, now I'm like, anyway, cause, sorry for all of our pilot friends are going to like yell at us for that. But it's besides the point. Anyway, come let me ask me you guys some questions. Yeah. Come at me. <laughs> come at me, bro. Let me ask some questions because these did come on. And we do want to continue to interact with our listeners and whatnot. So. First question came in. I'm going to paraphrase this question. Basically, the essence of the question is back in the story, the Nephilim, so the angels descended and had sex with humans and mm -hmm. they produced the Nephilim. Yeah. How did the demons impregnate, come into humanity? If they're not able to reproduce themselves between each other, how were they able to do so with humanity? Right. So there's a couple things you can point to. The first one is that, and actually Dr. Michael Heiser does some work on this and non-tenant was on the podcast last week and, and he was talking to me a little bit about this. It was actually something I didn't know. I heard Michael Heiser say it, but I didn't follow it up because not everything Michael Heiser says is necessarily right, but non-tenant generally says things that are correct. So I, I went back and looked into it. So if you look at Isaiah 6 and you see the seraph 
that are in the throne room. And it says that they had six wings. And it says with two, they cover their faces, with two, they cover their feet, and with two, they flew. Interestingly, if you look at that, the Hebrew word that is translated there as feet is probably not a good translation for feet. And it only shows up a couple places in scripture, but wherever it shows up in scripture, that the Hebrew word there, it's sexually suggestive. And so Nantenet had mentioned that, that it probably a better rendering of that is that with two, they cover their faces, with two, they cover their genitals, and with two, they flew. And when you think about it in terms of what they're actually accomplishing, there's no scriptural basis, symbolic or otherwise, for them to be covering their feet. What's the point of covering their feet? But the idea that they would cover their faces, right, because protecting their eyes, protecting their face from the glory of the Lord but then actually protecting the glory of the Lord then from like the shame, right, of the uncovered genitals. And so that's actually probably a, a better translation of that, which would just open up all kinds of questions about, well, if seraphs, right, if these angelic protectors, these angelic worshipers have genitals, why is it then? Because I think the question alludes to the passage in the New Testament when the Sadducees are trying to foil Jesus and they basically just say, and you know, and, and then Jesus says to them, you know, they'll be like the angels in heaven and the resurrection will be like the angels in heaven who don't marry or and are not given in marriage. But I think what's noticeable about that text is that Jesus doesn't say they cannot marry. It says that they do not marry. And whenever in the New Testament it's talking, whether it's in First Peter or in the book of Jude, whenever it's talked about how the angels rebelled in the days of Noah, it actually talks about leaving their proper station. So their proper station is, number one, locationally in the heavens, and then number two, their proper station is as a servant of God, and then they leave that proper station in order to go and do, and it says, pray upon strange flesh is the phrase in, in the book of Jude. So all that to say, the scriptures nowhere say that they cannot procreate. It says that they do not procreate. In other words, that's not functionally what they're for in heaven because God created the heavens full and complete, but he created the earth incomplete and empty in order to be filled. The other thing that I would say, and I think this is really interesting, is that think about how mankind is made in the image of God. And so when you take spirit, right, because this is the creation story, God breathes into the, and I think we think about that as sort of God fashioned a clay man and then breathed on him and the clay man became a living man. We picture it sort of Pinocchio style, right? But He's that's, a real boy. Yeah, but that's not really what's going on there. What's going on there is this idea that God impresses upon the clay himself, his life, right? His breath is his life, it's his spirit. So the idea there is that when spirit is impressed upon the ground, the clay, the dirt, a man is what comes from that. So the idea is that if God created the angels and their proper dwelling is in the heavens, and in the heavens they have heavenly bodies, 1 Corinthians 15 talking about the um, resurrection actually talks about this, that there are different sorts of glories, different sorts of bodies, different sorts of seeds that are planted, and in the resurrection they take on a different form. So the idea there is that what exists in the spiritual realm of heaven is not necessarily what it looks like when it comes and descends onto the earth. So have you ever seen the movie K-Pax? Yes. Is it, no, is it called K-Pax? Yeah, it's K-Pax. Yeah, K-Pax with, uh, with Kevin Spacey. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting. There's this really interesting exchange where the psychiatrist, which is Jeff Bridges, is talking to Kevin Spacey, who's the supposed alien. And he says, well, why is it that you look human? And he has a really profound answer. He's like, when I'm on K-Pax, I look like a K-Paxian. When I'm on Earth, I look like a human. And he's like, it's because 
this is the most energy efficient form for a, a sentient life form to take on earth. And he's like, have you ever wondered why an air bubble is round? And he's like, it's because it's the most energy efficient form for it to take. And so the idea there, again, if a celestial being comes into the earth realm, so to speak, it takes on an earth realm form. And so what does it look like when spirit is impressed upon the clay? It looks like a man. That's what it means that man is made in, in God's image. So I think that the angels, when they come down onto the earth, they have physical form because the form that they take, interestingly, they always show up in scripture as humans. Yeah. Why is that? Well, it's because they're spiritual beings, but when they come onto the earth, they take on human being, right? And I think that there is something that's serpentine about the seraphs that takes on a different form in the earth, but that's a different bunny trail that we can get down. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense, which would also explain why Lot gives up his daughters. Everybody's wanting to basically rape the two angels. They don't want to rape monsters. They want to rape something that's beautiful to them, right? right. Like, so um, it makes sense. That, it, that, it actually like, says that in the text that yeah. they looked fair to them, right? And yeah. that's that's the, the the word for beauty. They looked beautiful to them. They were but appealing. There was something physical appealing about them. It's interesting that they still recognize that they weren't us, that there was still right. something different. So like, it's funny, you had a way better explanation. I thought our explanation was like, well, we don't really know. But like- no. And we don't, <laughs> like that's speculation, but I think it's speculation based on good, that's great. good inference. Anybody else want to say anything on that before we move on? The thing that came to mind was a lot and just how they were physical beings. So yeah. like, because the question is, well, how does a spiritual being yes. physically procreate? And like to what you're saying, they, they not only look like us, but they become a physical being. Because like even those angels, they ate, like Lot made them a meal and they yeah, ate food. Yeah, that's right. So they, so they, they actually, had a physical digestive they actually, system. Yeah, they actually they, came yeah. and much like Christ took on human flesh. It right. seems like they take on human flesh and would then have physical appendages, which yep. would then allow for procreation yeah and it's, it's interesting too because the angels don't get the same mandate that we get right like we're called to multiply and take dominion of the earth so like that's a human quality is to multiply right yeah. and whereas the angels don't have that because the heavens were created full like you're saying but it's interesting when they descend and all of a sudden they're playing in our field all of a sudden something that is commanded of us the human part they're all of a sudden able to multiply yeah and it's like and like, obviously they weren't supposed to. I was texting with a friend of ours who listens to the show, who is that pilot friend who's probably going to have questions for Chris about his chemtrails. But Paul was asking me about whether or not I think that, uh, oh yeah, sorry. Yeah, I just outed him, Paul. Um, he was asking me whether or not I think that envy is a motivating factor when it comes to the celestials that rebelled, right? And there is something, right? Like we were given dominion over the earth. The angels don't have dominion in heaven. Yahweh reigns in heaven. So was there envy? Like they were, we were told to procreate. They're not commanded to procreate. They do not do that in heaven, right? So is there something about envy of the beings made in God's image that motivates them to sin? And I think that that's a, a, an astute insight. Again, it's it's inference, but I think it's it's astute. Yeah, isn't it Heiser that says that that is the original, like yeah. what's it, why Satan yeah. did make it? What was en envy of the spirit? special place in creation that God gave to Adam. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question because I want to get through yeah, some go of these. For it. Let's talk about Ouija boards for a second. <laughs> so okay. okay, Ouija board, a man-made creation, but yeah. is it a doorway then that gives access to demons? So the listener who asked this was asking specifically about Ouija boards, but let's just answer the question in terms of like for demon possession and demon affliction, are they restricted to us giving them access into our realm or do they have sovereignty authority in who they choose to possess and who they choose to attack? 
Deuteronomy 18, verses 9 and 10, it says, There shall not be found among you anyone that uses divination or an observer of times or an enchanter or a witch or a charmer or a consulter with familiar spirits or a wizard or a necromancer. So it's interesting that these aren't just characters that you can play as in RPGs, <laughs> that if God's law prohibits something, it's not prohibiting something that doesn't exist, right? God's law is prohibiting magic and sorcery and wizardry and necromancy because these are real things. And God's people are commanded not to do them. So witchcraft is real and magic is real. Divination is real. There's a reason, I think you said this on one of the first podcasts in this series, Chris, is that the magicians of Pharaoh's court were able to emulate, right? So Aaron threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake and the Egyptian enchanters did the same thing and they became snakes as well. Now, interestingly, the word there is actually the same word that's used for the serpent in the garden. And so it's more likely that their staff turned into a dragon and then Aaron's dragon ate their dragons, which is pretty awesome like it changes that story a little bit it's way cooler like, it's so much cooler like, you're picturing like a magic the gathering summoning a wizard to do battle against another wizard's dragon you know and then I mean? god being like now moses go pick it up yeah like, yeah, yeah exactly so it's just anyway, anyway but whatever that looked like there was obviously very strong prohibitions against magic and witchcraft and divination in god's law and even when you look at the witch of Endor, who summons Samuel, right? So Samuel is asleep in the Lord, right? And what's the first thing he says when he's summoned? Like, why have you awakened me, right? Like, what's going on here? So Saul goes to consult Samuel after he dies. And so he goes to a witch who can summon this spirit. And that actually happened. That's in the Bible. We got to deal with it, right? And so I think that what we see then is that there are things, because that was a human who through some form of divination, some sort of spell, some sort of concoction, some sort of witch's brew, whatever the case is, used something to truly summon Samuel, right? And Samuel has a conversation. And I know that some commentators say, was this really Samuel? Was this a deceptive spirit? Was this a whatever? Well, the Bible doesn't say, but what the Bible does say seems pretty clear that it was Samuel. There's nothing except our modern sensibilities that would seem to indicate that this wasn't Samuel. So then the question becomes, well, how did that human being do that? And the answer is through witchcraft, through divination. So yes, a Ouija board is a man-made object, but man-made things have been used in wicked ways for witchcraft and divination throughout the centuries. And traditionally, it's only since the rise of materialism that uh, the church has stopped talking about these things. When the church would take dominion in a new town, in a new city center, one of the first things that they would do is they would have everybody bring their books of incantation and divination, which were often handed down in families. And so you would have these multiple generations of witchcraft that had been added to and everything like that. And they would have them burnt in the in the city square. They would burn these, these books. Why? Not because there was no power in them, because there was power in them. So does a Ouija board, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if a particular Ouija board that's sold on Amazon or sold at Walmart, like they have these things all over the place. Does that thing have any power? No. But what I would say is that witchcraft and divination are real and malevolent spirits and principalities and powers of darkness are real. And so if, if there are even naive children who are in a home where Christ's dominion is not ruling and reigning, do those malevolent spirits that are being called upon even by naive children then have access to go in and do things? I think that absolutely. 
So you asked about whether or not these spirits need uh, permission. permission. And I think that's a really interesting question because I know some questions came in about vampires and other various things. So maybe we'll get to some of that today if we have time. But in a lot of these mythologies, these monsters need permission, whether it's to, right, there's Native American myths about demons, the myth of the medicine man in the uh, North American mythology where in order to save his wife or, or no, sorry, in order to open up the barren womb of his wife, he had to allow a demon who is part of a different ethereal plane to come in to earth. And that was the deal that he made because that demon couldn't come in without permission from somebody who inhabited this realm. And you look at those kinds of mythologies and those kinds of stories, and there is this common link. And I think when you're looking at some of these mythologies, common information that spans generations, spans cultures, spans languages, there's something to them that we ought to think about. So this motif of permission occurs on a regular basis. I don't know what that is, but I do think that when you involve yourself in occultism, witchcraft, all that kind of stuff, you do invite things in that have a unique sort of power, it seems, than if they weren't invited in through that way. Yeah, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It's important to keep the two kingdoms in our minds. That's right. Like there's, there are those who are in Christ who have been sealed and the darkness can't be in them. Yeah. But then everybody else is is kind of fair game because they walk in the darkness. Even if they're not Satan worshipers, they're on his team. Right. And that's just like when we think big story, that is what we're saying about everybody who isn't of us is against us. And so there's this idea of where I wouldn't say like, oh, I touched a Ouija board, therefore I'm now, I've given right. access. But everybody who's on their team is in multiple ways. So if it's pornography watching, if it's right. if it's this sin, they're surrendering their the authority in their heart to wicked forces. Does that mean every single person is demon possessed? No, but it is like you start to flirt on those skirts where you totally. are. And I would say like the heart condition behind some of the stuff does matter. Like, so like we've all heard the story about like, you know, some people just play the Ouija board and they're just like trying to freak their friends out. And then some people are doing it because they literally want to interact with the upside over or whatever. However, yeah, upside however, down. Uh, upside down. Uh, I couldn't remember what the word was, yeah. Jordan. The intention there is to access a demon, which is basically being like, pay attention to me, turn your gaze right. over here. And then you've, in essence, asked them to come into your presence, you know what I mean? And to be, and to be around you. So like, I wouldn't say they need permission to do it, but there is like this idea of don't flirt with these things, which is interesting because this actually kind of leads to our, one of our next questions, which was about, I I would just, just before you get into that, I think you said something that was really, I think profound in terms of application for people. So just, there's a whole category of Christians who would never touch a Ouija board because they're afraid of the gateway that it is. And yet who open up pornography on their uh, web browsers every single day in their homes. And you're, you're inviting the same level of, of malevolent spirit into your home by accessing pornography in your home every single day than you are playing with a Ouija board. So that's not to downplay the seriousness of the Ouija board. It's to upplay the seriousness of pornography. Yeah, so it's just interesting absolutely. that we don't always associate demonic activity with all of these things. But high wickedness is always, you know, always related to the demonic activity and obviously the sin in our own heart as well. But don't think for a second that opening up pornography daily in your home is doing any less damage than playing with Ouija boards. Men, we have to be ruthless in our protection of our, of our families yeah. in terms of like we can't give the enemy quarter in, yeah. any, in any regards, which means like just like you're saying, like get off the Internet, toss it out of the house if you need to, to yep. keep people in your house safe from that. I, I think of like Gideon. 
before he leads the 300 men against the 100,000 Midianites, the first thing he actually, he has his name changed. Why? Because he flips over the statue of Baal. He removes their idol worship in the house. And judgment always begins in the house of the Lord, which means judgment also begins in our homes. If you want to protect your family from being demon-possessed, don't be granting them access into your home by inviting them into your homes via the internet. And just maybe a foreshadowing or a spoiler alert. I think we're going to likely, however long this series goes, we don't have a plan for this because a lot of questions and a lot of interest has come up because of it. But however we end, I think we're going to end with the idea of what does it look like to take dominion within your home and protect your home? And then what does it look like from the dominion we take personally in our homes and our churches? What does it look like to spread that out throughout the culture? Because that's how you protect Well, and I think one thing that comes to mind is I think we would all agree that as a believer who has their heart regenerated, Holy Spirit resides in us, we can't be demonized. demonized, That's right. But we can still have demons around us and have... So if we're in our home and we're watching pornography or whatever sin it may be, we've put a basket on our light so then the darkness can encroach in on an impact. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you have all these stories of believers who have dark presences in their home and they just can't explain it. But it's not like it's indwelling in the way that we see in the New Testament. So I think even just for people to have that mindset, we can't be demonized. But if we allow sin in our lives and in our home, they can do things, Right. right? They're powerful. I mean, what was the one angel that defeated like 180,000, or I always forget. the Yeah, Assyrians. Yeah, Yeah, and it's like, these are not to be trifled with. Like, these are powerful beings who want to see our destruction. And the visual that I have in my home is Harry Potter reference, like expecto patronum, right? (laughs) So it's like, if we are living in the light and fostering godliness and holiness, then we are expelling the darkness that's trying to encroach in our home. But if we put a, well, wand, quote unquote, (laughs) away, and if we just... AKA the word of God. That's right. (laughs) If we just then allow the darkness to reside in us and our lives to be sinful, well, then we're not doing anything to expel the Dementors. Yeah, that's right. My, my Patronus is a lion. Yeah. <laughs> like, just like, that's the <laughs> lamest thing we've I ever I can see yours being like a field mouse. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just this big, big guy uh, and just like a little... A little tiny guy. Yeah. Like, doesn't take much. Reap a cheap. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Right? <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> what, what, Jordan's is Pikachu? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just like, uh, I have no idea what that even is. Oh, for Interesting when we're talking about demons' power... It's interesting that often in scripture, when an angel appears, people fall down immediately in worship. Yeah. And how often, when it's not Christ figure, it's they're like, "Get up! Don't worship me." Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't like that. Uh, we don't. We don't. <laughs> we don't like it. Man's first reaction is fear to fall down and yeah. like, "Don't destroy me!" Like, and it's because they are, as you said, not to be trifled with. Mm-hmm. Which actually leads kind of nice into the next question. We got a question about. I think, Nate, you said you don't think there's a a hierarchy of demons. And I kind of think there is. And so, like, um, let's just talk biblically about, like, is there a hierarchy of angels? Because there's archangels, there's seraphim, there's cherubim. Are those all just titles for the same thing? Or are they roles? Yeah, so I tend to think of those more as roles than they are ontological differences. Okay, so you have the seraphs, right? And the seraphs are described, scripturally speaking, as serpentine beings that are in the presence of Yahweh. You also have the cherubs, cherubim. The cherubim are always described generally as multi-headed animals that live on the earth. It's interesting, though, because when you think about in Ezekiel, it talks about the four different heads or the four different faces of the cherubim. 
all of those different faces are actually the faces of the various symbols of world empires that are mentioned in Daniel. So you have the Babylonians, it was the lion, and the uh, I think it was the Greeks were the ox or whatever. So what that's actually symbolically depicting is that even the kings of the nations that rule the world are nothing but the slaves that are pulling the chariot of God, the throne of God. So I don't know how literally we should take the fact that cherubs are these four-faced beings, but nonetheless, cherubs are described as throne guardians. And so I think if the seraphs are the worshipers, the cherubs are the throne guardians, I think it's more describing their function than it is their ontological difference. Mm -hmm. But obviously they're... So so just so I'm... Because I'm not sure everybody understands like all those words. So you're saying like, (laughs) just like there's humans who some are workers, like they're laborers, some are are architects and some are designers or whatever, like they're all the same beings, but they have different tasks and different authorities. Yeah. And we we tend to classify them all as angels, but even the word angel is more of a task word because it just literally means messenger. So one of these celestials that's guarding a throne room is called a cherub. One of these celestials that is worshiping or demanding worship is called a seraph. One of these celestial beings that is delivering a message for God is called an angel. So it's describing more functional differences than I think ontological differences. Now that said, there's a really interesting essay by Evan Wilson that shows shows up in The Forgotten Heavens, and he's talking about different forms. The essay itself is called The Governing Princes, and it's interesting. So it goes through sort of the the various gods that are named in the Old Testament. It goes through Satan, it goes through Gog, Apollyon, Baal, Asheroth, all of these various princes. But it's interesting. So just listen to this. I'm I'm just going to read from um, this essay. It says, in Isaiah 51, 9, it says, Was it not thou that didst cut Rahab in pieces and didst pierce the dragon? And then Psalm 89, 10 says, Thou didst crush Rahab like a carcass. Thou didst scatter thy enemies with thy mighty arm. End quote. This occurs in a psalm, which five verses earlier asks, Let the heavens praise thy wonders, O Lord, thy faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God feared in the council of the holy ones, great and terrible above all that are around him. So then Evan Wilson asks the question, who is this dragon Rahab? The word for dragon is tannin, which simply means elongated monster. It is clear that this east is associated with Egypt and its successes and failures were those of the nation. In a curse on Pharaoh, Ezekiel says for God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of your streams that says, My Nile is my own, I made it. I will put hooks in your jaws. So seemingly there is the understanding that a Leviathan-like serpent was the spiritual master slash prince of Egypt. Leviathan himself is not known to have ruled a nation through his wicked ways, Isaiah 27 verse 1, but his power is consistent with others who have. His many-headedness, Psalm 74, 14, is like that of the ancient serpent, Satan, of Revelation, but it is most likely they are two similar beings rather than identical. It is hard to admit to reptilian celestials, but even the seraph, mentioned only in Isaiah 6, seem to have that form of flying serpents or dragons. Some will object and say that the word is in reference to their shiny or fiery quality, and when the word seraph is used for flying snakes in Isaiah 30, verse 6, on this earth, 
earth, they would translate it as darting snake. This in spite of the fact that the two of the most incredible ancient historians, Herodotus and Josephus, mentioned the existence of flying snakes in that same region. So I just say all that to say this essay kind of maps the various Old Testament gods. And obviously last episode, we talked about these Old Testament gods as being real members of God's divine council, real celestials that are lesser gods. And in this essay, Evan Wilson just studies the text and kind of says there seems to be various forms of this. Some of them are are serpentine. Some of them are these elongated Leviathan-like sea monsters. And so we don't know what forms these various demons take on. But what I would say, because all of this is, is to do with the question of, is there a hierarchy? The reason I said I don't think there's a hierarchy is because I don't think there's a formalized hierarchy because they're all rebels. It's kind of like asking, is there a hierarchy in the mob? Well, yeah, of course there is. There's a boss, but there's backstabbing and there's rebellion and there's overthrowing and there's usurping all the time. These are malevolent forces that are after their own good. And they're only united in the rebellion against God, which just means that they're not working as cohesively together as I think we sometimes think. I think that there are malevolent spiritual forces, some of them rogue, some of them working in tandem, but that because they are, it's kind of like, you remember G.I. Joe? Cobra. I was thinking Cobra. Yeah. So Cobra, the problem with Cobra is that there was always infighting. If they had have just actually teamed up and let Cobra Commander be the boss, they might have actually overthrown the Joes. But the infighting between Destro and Cobra Commander and and later on, oh, come on. Serpentor? Serpentor, yeah, that's right. Serpentor was sort of their downfall. And I would say the same thing about the Kingdom of Darkness. If you didn't get the Cobra reference, it's like Lord of the Rings, how the orcs are all on the same side, but they do seem to be at war with each other too. I could have used a cooler reference, but I love G.I. Joe. No, no, the reference for me was... I got chills. I got chills. (laughs) Um, But like... Cobra Commander was also Serpentine, FYI. (laughs) G.I. Joe was awesome. <laughs> Can I just throw that? I, I mean, yeah. We should do an episode on old cartoons because they're way better than what. Yeah. It's interesting you brought up the, like, I think you're right. I don't think it's a formalized, a structured hierarchy in terms of like this one submits to this one. And it's like, it's constantly in flux if right. I could look at it because they are all rebellious against authority, right? right. Like in my brain, I kind of always like, I've always, I don't know where I got this and maybe paradise lost or something, but I've always kind of thought Satan was an archangel and like an archangel doesn't have more power. It's just more authority. And like, right. so some of the next tier down would fall with him, like kind of one third of each of the levels. Some of this comes from Catholic tradition. So Catholic tradition would say that there are three archangels, Gabriel, Michael, Michael and Lucifer. So basically and I'm a Catholic. <laughs> and so when Lucifer fell, he was in charge of one third of the angels in heaven, right? The other third being with Michael, the other third being with Gabriel. And so the idea, (laughs) so the idea would be that if Lucifer fell and brought a third of the angels, it would make sense that he was one of three archangels who ruled over a third of heaven. Some of that is taken from apocryphal writing and some of that is taken from speculational theology. I don't think that there's enough evidence scripturally to say that that's absolutely true, but that could be true. Let's assume that's true for a moment. Then at the very least, what you could say is that there is a difference in glory, which would be associated then with power of Lucifer to other celestial beings, which is why he would be looked at in such a prominence. We talked about this a little bit last time, but I actually think the sort of Satan centrism, (laughs) I guess, of Christian faith, I think is a little bit misplaced. 
again, in, in this essay that I cited, it's really interesting that he actually says, we've already covered how the nations were numbered according to the number of this August body and council, and we can only surmise that the assignment given to Satan sometime prior to the writings of Second Kings was either narrowly Ekron or broadly Felicitia. Felicity. How do you say Philistine? Philistia? Philistia. Yeah, Philistia. Anyway, he talks about how this actually brings some sort of understanding to what's otherwise a really difficult passage when David makes the census. You remember that? It talks about how God told him to take a census, but then God punishes him for taking a census. It's not Yahweh God who incites him to take a census. It's actually the God of Ekron, which we assume and translate it as, you know, the Lord, but it's not. It's actually talking about a different God, a lesser God. And so what he's saying is that Satan who entices David to take a census and Yahweh essentially punishes him because he listened to a false God. I'll say two more things on that whole thing. Yep. One, Evan Wilson, whoever you are, yeah, like, come on we, the podcast, We would like man. to see you because uh, we agree. read that and we love it and we would we have questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like, and apparently you've only gone through this once in your entire life and you've published nothing else on it. So please. <laughs> Who are you, Evan Wilson? Yeah. You're like Waldo. <laughs> and you've passed away. Maybe rest in peace. And he's like, no idea who you are. Second thing, so how do you reconcile then? Just quick question in terms of, because there is a passage where Jesus says, oh, those ones can't be cast out by anything but prayer, which right. seems like he's differentiating between levels of power and authority in yep. demons. That's kind of my last little question on that. Yeah, I think that that's a sometimes misunderstood passage of scripture anyway, because it's not like there's a prayer formula. And again, the Catholics have gotten into a problematic this way where they've formulized everything. So you can cast out a demon if you follow these particular formulas. I don't think we see that scripturally. I think what Jesus is actually saying there, because what's interesting, if you read the passage, Jesus doesn't actually pray. He actually just tells the spirit to get out. So he says to his disciples, this kind of only comes out by prayer. And then he just tells the demon to get out. So he doesn't even pray to get it out. But what's interesting is that right before that, Jesus had retreated on his own to fast and pray, which he did often through his earthly ministry. So I think what he's saying there is that the apostles, and this is a this is an ongoing theme in the New Testament, is that the apostles were relying on their own power, their own zeal, their own whatever, whereas Jesus, even though he's the son of God, he's Yahweh in the flesh, still availed himself of the supernatural resources of heaven by retreating and, and relying on God. And so I think what he's saying is that it's not your power that casts out this demon, nor is it even mine. It actually comes from my father who's in heaven, right? So I think that's what that passage is about. Amen. Let's end this episode here because we got about a third of the way through the questions. Okay. So, <laughs> All right, we'll um, do another one next time. We'll do a next one. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Send us more if you have them because we love talking about this stuff. Peace, guys.